Welcome to the Swamplex Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I am Boomer. I am Allie. And we are recording in a post-Barbenheimer world. There are people out and about at the movie theaters every day now. It feels very strange for someone who's been going to the theaters regularly over the past few years. Yeah, the screenings of Oppenheimer at the theater that's showing in a 70mm like have all been selling out. I left the theater and there's just like a line for the next screening. So yeah, people are out. They're seeing things. It's kind of a great feeling. There's an enthusiasm for the art form out there right now that brings me joy. I think when this happened last year with Top Gun, Maverick, and Avatar The Way of Water, <laughs> I was not feeling joy. I was feeling the opposite of joy. I was God, feeling I'm miserable. Tired. I'm so tired now already. I'm like, that just like sapped every bit of energy that I had right, right. this podcast was just hearing those words strung together in that order. Yeah. But Barbenheimer is energizing. I think there needed to be some kind of like injection of energy in the movie going ritual right now, especially with like the ongoing labor strikes where studios are basically holding movies hostage and now delaying things until next year uh, so they don't have to pay people what they're worth. It just feels good that people are proving that there is an audience out there, you know, who values this stuff and are happy to go out and enjoy seeing a movie together. Yeah, uh, the party that I went with to go see Barbie, not to jump straight into things, but um, there were nine of us, and it was for a screening that was added at 11 p.m. because everything had sold out for that day. That was that was opening day on the, the 20th. Yeah, there were eight in my group, and majority ruled to see Oppenheimer. This was, this was not my first choice, but there were eight in my group. So yeah, it's just like people gathering, people going, they're seeing movies with their friends. It's the summertime. Great. I'm happy. And from what I gather from our pre-show prep, it sounds like everybody has been watching more movies than normal in this chat as well. Well, yeah, I I think that we talked about this briefly last time, but um, when we recorded two weeks ago, I had just uh, found out that my best friend's boyfriend had tested positive for COVID. So then I was in like quarantine again, you know, until I was symptom free and, and tested negative and then was like, OK, I'm going to go to the movie. So just to bear in mind that like, yeah, that that's part of it is that I was trapped indoors and uh, again um, <laughs> and not just by the raging heat, but by like, you know, needing to quarantine and being responsible. So that's <laughs> my reasoning uh, why I've seen more than normal, you know, I definitely added a few uh, screenings to my uh, normal weekly stuff. But now you've broken free outside the theater lobby, Barbie box. You're back out in the world in gen pop. Yeah. You know, living, living free, dying hard. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess uh, looking at my list, uh, I, I've seen five things since we last met. But only one of them did I did I not write copy on, and that that copy has not uh, already been published. I did finally finish and uh, published the review of Who Killed Teddy Bear, which I'll once again recommend. Um, and as in that review, I will recommend that you go in as blind as possible, and that will mean somehow trying to figure out how to navigate to the movie without reading any of the um, info boxes or preview information that you might see, considering that um, every single place where this movie can be found, the info box spoils um, who is stalking the main character, uh, even though that's something you don't find out until halfway through. And there are many, uh, it just kind of makes for um, a less enjoyable experience if 
you know, you're not suspecting some of these people who are red herrings uh, simply because you already read who the killer is or the who the stalker is. So go into that one blind if you can. Also, I'll briefly say that I did watch Dead Man on Campus, which in many ways is a sort of spiritual sibling to Pumpkin, which is a movie that Brandon and I did in an episode when Allie was unavailable around Thanksgiving time last year. Uh, I think we both really loved Pumpkin. Uh, Brandon, I think that you would enjoy Dead Man on Campus, but it is not as good as Pumpkin. The thing, it's uh, shooting a little bit more broadly. Um, it's hitting a little bit more sporadically. Um, some of the humor is a little bit more obnoxious, whereas in Pumpkin, it only works because it never looks away. You know, it's a movie that is in many ways like very... I would say kind of meta, even though like I almost feel like that's pejorative about some things now. But it's a very meta story in the sense that it's like making fun of and uh, drawing inspiration from Douglas Sirk era melodramas while being a narrative that is absolutely and utterly ridiculous. And it only works because it never breaks eye contact with you. Like if it ever, even for a moment, stopped treating the subject matter as if it were Peyton Place, then it wouldn't work. And in this movie, it doesn't quite work as well. Although if you did enjoy Pumpkin, I'd still say track it down. Just make sure to watch it with like a group of like-minded people. Like find some friends who already like Pumpkin and then watch Dead Man on Campus together. I uh, I did see Barbie, but uh, Brandon said, you know, you have already talked about that on the most recent main episode of the podcast. So uh, I think that we will hold off on having a big um, Barbie quorum until Ali is able to see it. So my two big recommendations from things that I have seen and that we have uh, put copy up for are The Hairy Bird, which is a 1998 Miramax film that was also released as All I Want to Do and Strike. Um, even though All I Want to Do is a very banal title that you can barely remember and doesn't have much to do with the plot and the title strike um kind of spoils some important information that happens later a real who killed teddy bear scenario <laughs> yeah yeah so uh strike is at least accurate but it's like that's the you know climax of the film that happens long after many of the other things that you've seen so i don't know mm. but uh the hairy bird is pretty difficult to find i mean you will probably have to search for all three of those titles I found it on Hoopla, um, which I was able to, you know, borrow it and watch it using my library card. I've almost watched this movie on Hoopla about three times this year so far, but I could not get anyone else on board to be excited about it. Oh, my God. I do uh, fawn over anything with a 90s era Kirsten Dunst in it, though. She is so good in this. Lynn Redgrave, and she, she shares so many scenes with Lynn Redgrave. And they are so powerful and so potent and so funny and so touching and human. This uh, genuinely, this could be end up being like a top 10 movies of my lifetime movie for me. I really enjoyed it. It's very funny. It's very heartwarming, but not in a way that is sententious or pretentious or saccharine. It's just very honest, and that honesty is what gives it its poignance and its humor as well. I cannot recommend it more highly. Um, the only thing that is a bit of a distraction is that Vincent Carthizer plays like a teen beatnik in it, and it, you know, I I find him very distracting because he looks kind of like he did 
not terribly uh, long after this when he was on Angel as a character that everyone hates. And then he doesn't look anything at all like his now most famous character of Pete from um, Mad Men. But he's constantly doing this real 60s beatnik uh, hipster talk that is super obnoxious, but uh, intentionally so. Uh, and the other big recommendation that I would give would be to the uh, Filipino film Leonor Will Never Die, uh, about a woman who... Uh, we previously talked about the movie Delirious here on this podcast, in which John Candy gets a head injury and then enters his own fictional world as the main character. In this one, Leonor also uh, sustains a head injury, and she finds herself transported into the late 70s, early 80s era Filipino action film that she has written a script of many years before when she actually was like working in the industry, and now she's kind of fallen on hard times, even though they don't bother her as much as they do uh, her family. She, start, she pulls out this old script to work on it, gets conked on the head, ends up in it, not as the main character, but just as someone who is present for the events that she wrote. Um, and we come to learn that the main character of this screenplay, Ron Waldo, shares his name with Leonor's um, son, who was killed in an onset accident much earlier in her life. And she has this beautiful conversation with the mother of the fictional Ron Waldo within the film, where it's one of those really beautiful demonstrations of the thing that happens sometimes when you're writing where your characters, all of whom have something of you inside of them, like every character you write has something of you in them, uh, that's what motivates them. That you, know, you have to have empathy in order to be able to write them. And so she has this conversation with this character who in many ways is her. She is the mother of Ron Waldo, and she's poured that aspect of herself into this character, and this character suddenly speaks to her in this monologue that is more... Like it's this thing that happens where sometimes your characters tell you something directly or indirectly, like to you or about you, something in yourself that you didn't know consciously that somehow your characters do. And it was a really beautiful, tender, touching thing, while also being a very funny movie, but meta in the sense that there are points in the narrative where Leonora or Leonora is in this film and you can tell that she forgot or lost her train of thought or couldn't figure out how to end a scene because sometimes the characters themselves will realize it. You know, there's a scene where the film Ron Waldo is chasing down uh, one of the villains and he loses track of him in the street and it kind of loops back on itself a couple of times. Like Leonore is reading back over the last few lines of the script trying to like get that engine chugging again. And the character just looks up at like the camera, which is, you know, high in a way, and I guess a crane shot over the street. It's very cinematic. And is like, I don't know what to do until you tell me. And then breaks down and does like a little dance, just like waiting. Oh, it kind of reminded me of when you're playing like a video game and the character has like an idle animation where like if you put the controller down without pausing it, the character will do a little dance every once in a while. It was very much like that. <laughs> um this one has quickly become a, a contender for my top three for this year. Leonor Will Never Die. Loved it. Um, it's a little bit difficult to get into at first, but once you get on the film's level, it's really fun. I really enjoy the magical realism of it because there's a lot of like 
things in it that are clearly supernatural or that we would clearly consider as supernatural elements in a story, you know, written by an American, uh, not American, but written by, um, you know, a, a typical stereotypical, like a New York, New Yorker short story writer, this would be a supernatural element. And that's what the entire like narrative would be about. But it's just an element of the world that the characters inhabit that all of them accept at face value that there is like a ghost among them who is, you know, the ghost of the real Ron Waldo, who is interacted with at first just by Lenore, but then later by other characters as well. So it's like, oh, he's just like there. This isn't like a vision of Leonora. She's not like depressed and, you know, she's having a conversation with this spectral figure of her son that she imagines. He's just a character in this movie. And it's really fun. And the the lines between reality and fiction tend like start to get really blurry in a, you know, a, sort of a Kaufman-esque way, but then beyond that. And I really enjoyed it. I give it a big recommendation. Uh, and then the last thing, one of the things that I watched while I was in quarantine was Smoking Causes Coughing, which Brandon has already done copy about. But for those of you listening who don't know, it's a movie that starts out as uh, sort of a parody of Sentai, which in case you don't know, somehow, uh, that is the television program in Japan that all of the uh, Power Rangers TV shows here in the U.S. have drawn their sort of like battle footage from. Um, but then it immediately turns into a, like a narrative where the five members of this team are sent on a retreat. And then that functions solely as a framing device for them to tell and hear various stories which are at turns comedic and horrific in a very Danger 5 kind of way, uh, if you're into that program. Which, if you're not, you should check it out anyway. I think it's on Tubi. And I, I did want to ask, Brandon, which was, if you recall, your favorite story in this movie whenever you watched it the first uh, time? No Contest, the one about the helmet. Really? A couple's retreat where someone becomes addicted to wearing an isolation helmet, and then it turns into a slasher scenario. I was, like, crying laughing in the theater. I thought it was so funny. I did really love that one. It is really great. I had a real fondness for... um the woman whose nephew just keeps getting ground into smaller and smaller <laughs> pieces. That one was very funny to me. The scene where he's initially stuck in the giant industrial um, metal shredder and they're trying to figure out how to reverse it to get him out of there. It reminded me of a classic Simpsons scene. Um, it's from the episode, I believe it's when the PTA disbands. And Grandpa and Jasper both end up teaching at um, Springfield Elementary for a bit. And Jasper's beard gets caught in the um, <laughs> pencil sharpener. Yeah. And so they're both, because they're both kind of old and senile, they're like, okay, not going to go that way again. And then intend to reverse the direction that it's turning. But because they're forgetting each time which way it was going, it just keeps getting worse and worse. There's also that bit of business in Who Framed Roger Rabbit where Bob Hoskins' tie gets caught in the shredder. Yes, yes. Roger Rabbit does not reverse it. Yeah, classic bit. Yeah, but but kind of played for horror. And, and Oh, yeah. And this then is a horror anthology. Around. Yeah, completely lose back around to comedy, though, by the end, especially like, like cringe or situational comedy in the sense that I, I guess we can spoil this. I, I don't think our listeners are going to be ruined for this, but he eventually gets ground down until he's nothing but a pair of lips and a bucket of like scraps and he and his aunt have a his aunt have a um i don't know why i said aunt i guess because 
talking about French people. So I think that they're hoity-toity, which is how I think of the aunt pronunciation. He and his aunt are uh, driving to his mother's birthday. And then she slips on the stairs after they have this very heartfelt conversation and just spills him everywhere. And then it ends. And it's so funny. It's so good. I really enjoyed that one. Uh, I think that one was my favorite of all of the stories that were present. But I think that they were all good. I do want to note this is uh, directed by Quentin Depew, who uh, most famous for Rubber, the one about the killer car tire. Oh, I love, I love Rubber. Yeah. People Rubber hate that movie. So good. He also directed Deerskin, which was a former Swamp Flicks movie of the year in which Boomer does not believe exists. Yeah. About a killer jacket. Love that movie as well. He just likes okay. killer inanimate objects, which I appreciate. All of his movies are these like 70 minute exercises on like one absurdist idea pushed to its extreme. And like the fun of this one is like getting a taste for that and like even smaller bite sized morsels. It's like watching seven Quentin Depew movies back to back in an hour. Yeah. And it's very funny. It gets a big recommend from me, and that's going to be pretty high on my list this year, too, I think. Hell yeah. But um, that about wraps it up for me, and now that I've held the floor forever. One more note. You can read all those reviews on Swamplix.com, which I don't think oh, I mentioned yeah. at the top of the episode. <laughs> but everything you just mentioned, you've reviewed very recently. So if you want to read anything at length, uh, they're all close to the top of the website right now. Yeah, and I'm, I'm proud of most of those. <laughs> <laughs> Allie, what have you been watching? So I actually have been watching a lot. Um, my circumstances have not been quarantine, but um, I have been staying at a house that is not my own, watching a cat who is not my own. And so I also keep crazy hours. So, you know, staying up late by myself, I watch movies. Um, so because I knew that I was going to go see Oppenheimer with a bunch of people, I watched, finally, all of the uh, Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Um, they're a hot mess. I'll be honest, y'all. They're a hot mess. It's not just because, like, I think the most interesting aspect of Batman as a character is everybody else around him. Um, it's also just, I feel like, in an effort to, like, really damn pack it with action, it's just too many things going on. And when... The best thing about your second movie is Heath Ledger, who famously died during filming. Or was it during filming? Or like uh, it was it was while they were editing it. It was post production. Yeah. yeah. Famously died before it was released. I don't know. And then the third one, he somehow managed to make Catwoman boring. Yeah, I, I will agree. I don't I don't necessarily agree uh with your findings on the first two. But I do fully agree with you that uh, The Dark Knight Rises is a bad movie. It is a bad movie. <laughs> I think the first one's a little boring, too. Yeah. Uh, just because, like, the way that everything has to be explained now to have, like, a real-world logic to it. So we have to watch him go to, like, ninja school <laughs> before we accept that he can kick ass. It's like, God, this is a I think this movie is to blame for that being the yeah, way that things I think are so now. Too. And in that sense, it does not bother me in this, like, initial outing you know that it does that because it was like sort of a novelty at the time and i can still see like the novelty of it it's sort of the way that a lot of times whenever a mockbuster is made or a bunch of knockoff movies are made after a, a famous movie or a movie uh, does really well critically you know like all of the jaws knockoffs and all the godzilla ripoffs and all of that they tend to do it worse and not understand what works about the initial exemplar but 
I'm not going to um, get on a soapbox to defend a Christopher Nolan movie either. Yeah, don't, don't do it. <laughs> Other than to say, I also hated the third one. Um, for that one, I got real angry on like a moral level uh, in the sense that like it portrays the people of Gotham as being willing to just like all of whom are involved in sort of like an Occupy Gotham movement. Yeah. Are all completely won over immediately by a terrorist uh insulting <laughs> it's so insulting and it's like insulting like on a personal level as someone who like heavily identifies like as an anarchist i'm like this is this is a hot mess and it's definitely just like a product of propaganda i mean the second one's pretty conservative too yes it's at least soft right leaning but you know the heath ledger performance is so fun that i'm willing to forgive the fact that nolan's kind of a meathead at heart even there's a meathead who's read a couple philosophy books yeah. And th- it's also kind of the example of something where, you know, you you can say, like, the second one is, does not align, but it's still a great movie. Whereas the third one is a bad movie that also I do not align with. You uh, know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Also, like, I was not paying attention for the original, like, discourse of uh, Batman and all of these movies. So I missed like a whole section of the internet joking about the Bane voice. And it is the funniest. I don't know. Like every time Bane like appeared, I was cackling. I was like, who thought this voice was a good idea? Like this is the most ridiculous villain voice I have ever heard in my life. It has real Battlefield Earth energy in that performance. That's the one thing I would like most readily recommend watching the Harley Quinn animated show. I, That's how yes, I beat me to I was it. Gonna say, yes. yes, I did. Bane is start, hilarious on yes, that. He's so funny. I did start watching that actually. Um, but that is a, a part of this journey um, that I went on in which I uncharacteristically watched superhero movies. So y'all get to hear my takes on them is after that, after I did the Nolan Batmans, I decided, well, Hell, I might as well watch the whole Birds of Prey. I might as well watch the Suicide Squad and then Birds of Prey. So I did that as well. Did you? I'm sorry. Did you watch the Suicide Squad oh, or Suicide Squad? Suicide Squad is the one I watched. I watched the, the one that's considered bad, badly. Uh, okay. Speaking. Yeah. I reviewed it positively. Uh, I <laughs> Much don't, to my shame. I don't blame you for that. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. I had more fun with it than the Nolan Batmans. Uh, I think they're about on par. <laughs> wow okay here's the thing we're we're gonna get swatted we're gonna get swatted by some fans please don't do that i don't think it's an exceptionally bad movie i think it's like a hot topic themed shoot 'em up yes and that there are enough people who care more deeply about superhero comics than i do uh-huh. that puts pressure on it to be more than that and i think the post-production editing where they took it out of the director's hands um and made it more of like a th- two-hour trailer instead of what he wanted to make actually saved the movie from being much it worse did. than it is it really did um i was thinking that i was like how what did you want this to be because i can't see like an end result here that would ever be like good <laughs> broadly speaking like but yeah once again uh don't swap me or anything because i am the last person who's like takes on superhero movies should ever be listened to because i generally don't care for them. You did just name drop the only good one from this whole recent cycle. Birds of Prey. Birds yes. of Prey, yeah. Okay, I did watch that as well after Suicide Squad, and I enjoyed it. 
quite a bit. It was a lot of fun. Um, I guess I was also kind of like, well, while I'm on this like weird Nolan thing, I might as well also do kind of a Margot Robbie thing because I like her. She's a star. She is. She's a star. So much. Like there, it's undeniable at this point. I love. Yeah. I've really, I've really come to love her. Yeah. Walking out of Barbie, I actually did this in real time while texting Boomer. I was like. What are major studio movies? I'm talking like the big five studios, you know, like Universal, Disney, Paramount, etc., Sony, whatever. I was like, what are like the good movies from this decade so far that are like excellent pieces of art from like major studios? Mm-hmm. And I can only name four. Two of them were the last two Wes Anderson movies. And then two of them were two Margot Robbie movies. They were Barbie and Birds of Prey. Yeah. <laughs> I think that says something. It does. Like she really, she really has high charisma. She you really, made me yeah. like really doubt myself with that message because it made me. I was like, oh well. I I realized that like every, looking at who the release company was and like who the production companies were for everything that I had been ranking at the top of my list, and it's all. I was like, oh god, it's all a twenty four. I must be insufferable. <laughs> I was thinking that too, like French, <laughs> like pervert shit. A24 and Neon, like, indie uh, pandering. Um, you did have one exception, which was Nope from Universal, which I think is a, a good movie as well. Uh, yeah. I didn't love it quite as much, but, like, I think it deserves to be talked about in the same register. But, like, there really aren't that many, like, super satisfying mainstream movies from this decade yet. Uh, but yeah. Marco Robbie isn't two of them. I guess Tar was Universal. So that, that's it for me, I guess. Uh, that's that's nowhere near my. Uh, <laughs> that's not on my good list. It's on my naughty list. But <laughs> I, you and yeah, you, we're pretty diametrically opposed about this one, which is okay. Yeah. I don't need you to agree with me. I'm perfectly happy just being right. I, I have <laughs> not heard anybody else with uh, Brandon's opinions on Tar. So you know, to be fair, I think you are in the uh, majority here. Rumor. I'm being wrong with Flair, which is what's important. Yeah. Yes, that I love that for you. Yeah, so I watched Birds of Prey, um, and I did enjoy that quite a bit, because as we have just discussed, Margot Robbie is a star, and she's amazing, and I am so excited that she is getting so many chances to, like, showcase her talents. And even in things like um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where she doesn't really even have any lines, like, she's great. And I can't even explain it more than just, like, her presence. She's just got it. Yeah, so I went through a weird uh, superhero thing, uncharacteristically. And then I have also watched a movie from this year, which I guess is a comic book movie, but is not necessarily a superhero movie. I uh, watched Nimona with um, a six-year-old who also enjoyed it. Um, I... Really did. I had a lot of fun with this one because it is the most overtly queer children's movie I've ever seen. Just, there's nothing straight about this movie. And it is beautiful for that. Also, it's just, it's very high paced, like colorful, bubblegum, like fun. There's a lot of like ridiculousness to it. I don't know. I know I have more tolerance for like kids' movies than y'all do. So. I wouldn't recommend it to you, but whoever has kids out there, please watch it with your kids. Please turn them gay for all of us here at uh, Swamp Flicks. 
I did watch the entirety of the She-Ra series that this uh, same cartoonist was behind. And I remember reading a couple issues of Lumberjanes as well. Oh, Lumberjanes is also so good. I did not know that it was the same team. Okay. That this one's uh this one's more like a sword and sorcery like She-Ra thing, right? Uh yes. Yeah, I would compare it to She-Ra. It's okay. not really sword and sorcery. Like so the idea is that there is this knight who gets framed for killing the queen and teams up with this shape-shifting teenager who is basically an agent of chaos who tries to like help clear his name but it is not set in like uh you know hear the hear the very heary uh medieval type era it is like also very like futuristic you know there's like flying cars and things lasers and such so it's it's like a good like combination of the future sort of tech and sort of the whole like fantasy stuff which i think is really fun and i don't think you see enough of and obviously like shira you do see some of that but yeah i i thought it was a lot of fun i really enjoyed it um and in a year with horrible legislature i just think it's incredible that netflix put this out and it is something you can watch with children and yeah i i love that I would probably love that aspect of it, even if I hated the movie, but I did not hate the movie. I thought it was really fun and really cool, and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that one. I don't think the road to getting it on Netflix was easy. I think they had to fight a lot of different distribution paths oh, um, that basically that. didn't want to see it through because, you know, the right is so rabid about quote-unquote grooming in transgender politics right now. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of fun fun gender commentary in it so it is it is a minor miracle that it is on such a wide platform that so many people can access right now yeah and and we should embrace that so you know if you don't want to watch it just uh put it on and mute it have it in the background so you know gets those streaming numbers right which we'll never know right. unless the strike holds out those are being held hostage right they now are. yes <laughs> yeah. right but i did watch that and i did enjoy it and i thought it was really great and um yeah, should uh, watch it with your children and make your children gay. And I did not include this in my uh, list of I watched a superhero movie because to me, it had no reason to be in the Batman canon. I did watch the uh, most recent Joker movie with Joaquin Phoenix. A movie I also reviewed positively. <laughs> yeah, which I understand why you did. It is horrifying. It's a very scary movie. <laughs> it is so scary. But I also feel like it's one of those movies that if it hadn't been part of the Batman franchise, it wouldn't have gotten the attention it got. But it also, I think, would be better respected by film people, even though then it would just be Taxi Driver with a Clown. Hey, hey, hey. It's also um, King of Comedy with a clown. Yeah, that is also I mean, did King true. of Comedy right. not already have a clown? I mean, he was a bad stand-up. I don't remember him wearing clown makeup. Okay. All yeah. Right. Yeah, so that was kind of my uh, reaction to it is this is horrifying, but also needlessly tied into Batman. Like, I think that was honestly the weakest part of it. So that was kind of my thoughts on that. Um... I also did a uh, rewatch of a very cozy favorite movie of, uh, well, 
I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, but I know it is many people's uh, cozy favorite. Uh, First Wives Club, which is still, you know, very cozy, very fun. Would you believe that I've never seen it? I would, for some reason. <laughs> I would. I feel like you're kind of in the in the weird same camp as I am, where it's just kind of like, I personally, because of mama trauma, have avoided a lot of uh, chick flicks through the years. So all of these that I did watch, like as a kid, with my mom or my aunts and my grandma, like yeah. I'm just now kind of coming back around to and trying to like assess like which ones I do appreciate and which ones are kind of like, eh. you know, I, I only bring it up because it actually ties into something that we've already been talking about, which was right wing outrage. And we've talked about this a lot on, you know, various different episodes and in various places and in some of the essays and reviews, which is that like, you know, I grew up in like a rapture, I called essentially like it was a mega church and I went to the school and it was rapture based theology completely. It was, that was pretty much the biggest and most important part of the teachings of that. Um, and so I was kind of on the ground in like a, basically, you know, I lived through Jesus camp, that documentary, like that was my life for much yeah. of it. And first wives club is like one of the first times that I just have a memory of the name of a movie being invoked in a pulpit about how society is normalizes something normalizing something that's sinful and in this case it was like the oh the first wives there should only ever be one wife because you know <laughs> marriage is an eternal <laughs> commitment away. and oh, so we're talking about something that was like 30 years ago when they were talking about First Wives Club in the pulpit, just like now, you know, they're screaming up and down about Barbie in the pulpit this week. And next week, it'll be something else. And three years ago, it was something before that. And it just never, ever ends. And it's such a cycle that chews itself up over and over again. I mean, if anything, that like hack flipping through the newspaper, finding a new culture war wedge issue every week to like, triple down on has just become more of a mainstream ritual where like that's just everybody has to listen to that now instead of the people who like go to that church willingly oh my god you're right mm -hmm. we're all infected yeah it's it, you cannot escape the discourse not even by staying away from that pulpit wow we're we're uh we're really we're breaking down some barriers tonight <laughs> i know we're you thought i was gonna get swatted for uh hating on batman you, i wasn't even started yet <laughs> yeah so i i i watched that one and that is the funniest right wing takeaway because really i would think that the right wing takeaway is that this movie is about women empowerment and women not needing no goddamn man well i mean that's that's often what the what the real reason is yeah you know? yeah but yeah because it is definitely more about women supporting women and women's like financial independence and getting to that point so you know if you've uh, missed this uh 90s chick flick classic uh barbara streisand goldie hahn and diane keaton are women whose wealthy husbands have just divorced them in various like betraying sort of ways um and they had a friend who also had her husband divorce her and then immediately marry a much younger woman who 
killed herself. And so this inspires them to start a club for first wives who have been wronged. And they take back their finances. They take back all of the work that they've done. Or they uh, blackmail their husbands with uh, federal investigations, as is one case. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, so it's a lot about women being together and middle-aged women being together, which even today, I, I mean, we've talked about how, like, there is a lack of, like, movies for, like, older women. Oh, I don't I, know. I don't know. Like, I guess maybe I'm just, like, I know there's the book club movie and, like, yeah, that, there's also Brady. 80 for Brady and whatever. Like, there's a whole micro industry of just but this. I think this one is great because it's out. about, like, female friendship instead of, like, we're going to go see the top football player. And I'll also say there's a lot. It's it's you, it, you don't see a big budget picture like I remember First Wives Club being as frequently. I do think that, like, the 80 for Brady and Book Club things have been, those have both come out within the past five years. For the most part, there was before a this, club like, movie this year, and eighty for Brady was this year. Yeah, they were no, that's what I'm saying. Year. It's all within the past five years that you've started to see more. Oh, of I it. see. Yeah, but like, what's the difference between that and like Best Exotic Marigold Hotel or okay, or whatever? Best else? Exotic Marigold Hotel was British. Okay, there is a whole British it's micro very, industry too, with all of Maggie Smith in them. Very sleepy and British. <laughs> yeah. It's an imp- it's a it's an important distinction. I'm with Allie on this one. It is an important distinction that the Best Exotic Marigold Hotel was specifically a vehicle for old British actresses. Or, um, I'm sorry, mature British actresses. My next example was going to be the one about the queen who has an Indian friend. So, I mean, you called me yeah. out on it. Victoria and Abdul, which was sure. better than I thought it was going to be. It's still sure not it great. <laughs> anyway, Brandon watches more middle-aged lady movies than I do, which is fair. Oh, I see the trailers for months on end. I don't actually oh, go okay. to see them. Oh, okay. Sorry. I thought you were really... Brittany, though. Oh, yeah. Brittany. Brittany is on top of this. If you want a resource for this stuff, like, Brittany watches I them. I respect Brittany so much. With, uh, I appreciate Brittany so much. Religious and I diligence. Hope, yeah. I hope she knows that. If I lived in New Orleans, I, w- I would go with Brittany to see these things, probably. Just to, like, cure myself. Because I feel like I should be, as I am embracing terrible romance books i should be re-embracing the chick flick and figuring out which are good and worth keeping and i would say first wife club is good and worth keeping you know i think there's a lot of throwaways but it sounds enough like an unmarried woman that you know it has my attention so that brings me back around to another recent movie that I saw and Brandon saw in theaters that uh, Boomer did not see because he had no interest in seeing Oppenheimer. Correct. <laughs> and I don't blame you for that. Um, I would not have had any interest in seeing it except I got outvoted. But I did go see it on 70mm film at a theater with a 70mm projector. So like, I, I did it legit. And I liked it more than I thought I would. That doesn't mean I was crazy about it. I liked a lot of things that it did. I thought I was going to be super bored with it, but I was not. Um, Probably part of that is it's like, I like when history is like weird and niche and very specific. And I feel like a lot of biopics really get like broad with the context. And I feel like Oppenheimer just kind of like, throws you in and expects you to like follow along which 
I, I like that way better. But uh, I also thought that it made a lot of stylistic choices that were super interesting. And I was not actually really expecting it of him with a, a biopic. I, I know, Brandon, you uh, just thought it was eh. Well, I mean, structurally, it is like a dad movie. It is. In the like JFK or Aaron Sorkin mold. Yeah. You know, it's very talky men in rooms having these different hearings. Yeah. Uh, one congressional and one like a military tribunal about Oppenheimer's security clearance. I mean, pretty dry stuff. Yeah. But it's edited with flair and it alternates between those two perspectives in a sort of lyrical way that adds some energy to it. And then there's like some internal lyricism to it as well in early scenes where he's trying to fathom what an atom looks like. Yes. And uh, he keeps having these intrusive thoughts of like nuclear molecular structures. And then also um, later on uh, after he has sex with a smoking hot communist, uh, his wife has to hear about it in the military hearing. Which we all do. Well, and then uh, she, she has intrusive thoughts watching him have sex in the middle of the hearing. Yeah. And then later after the bomb goes off, he has his regrets and doubts about what he has done. Which, I mean, he should. Yeah. And uh, he starts having intrusive thoughts about the havoc that he cannot see that he's wrought on the other side of the world. And, like, yeah. those are by far the most interesting touches to the they movie. They are. They really are. Yeah. We're talking total maybe three minutes out of a three-hour film. Yeah. I think the other um, interesting parts are, I think there's a lot of rain and, like, water imagery. And I was just, um, since I just saw this with a group of people, I was just talking about this um, because I'm... A morbidly curious person, like one of my favorite nonfiction books is Hiroshima by John Hersey, which is a firsthand account of post-bombing Hiroshima. And one of the things that happens like post-nuclear bomb is it rains and that rain will kill you. Um, Don't drink that water. So like just all of the rain imagery about this movie, about this guy who's having like his life judged, basically. I think that that created a lot of tension for me. Because I'm just like, oh, I don't want to touch that water. And it was just all the rain just really, really got to me in that way. Just viscerally. Like I said, I thought I was going to be really bored with it. I thought that I wasn't going to care for it because I'm really, really hit or miss on Nolan. Like, he's a guy for spectacles that aren't as dumb as other spectacles, basically, to me. And I feel like this movie is kind of on the same level is that why is there a need for him to be more than that though he makes like entertaining blockbuster yeah. movies which not many directors do yeah yeah exactly i'm not as interested in this one as most of his movies like because it's just not my genre yeah but i don't know in general like i go out when he puts out a new film and it's like a spectacle and i enjoy yeah, myself and, exactly you know that's fine i also like i agree with that i think you know there's a lot of hype there's a lot of build-up and i know like that's outside world and outside world shouldn't feed into how my opinions work, but it's a context. And I think Nolan gets portrayed as smarter than he is. And like you said, he's a meathead who's read a philosophy book or was it boomer that said that one of y'all said that a meathead who's read a philosophy book. And that is like the best description of him I've ever heard. So I'm going to have that in my back pocket. I don't want to have to answer to the opinions of like, 19 year olds who have seen 10 movies and Christopher Nolan directed three of them. Like, I, I don't really need yeah. to like contend with the hype that much. Uh, I, I do enjoy going out to the theater when he puts out a new one. Yeah. I almost didn't go to see this though. Cause I just knew 
I was going to have a kind of like mediocre reaction to it. Yeah. Um, hoping otherwise, but it was fine. Yeah. I mean, it's just, that's kind of how I feel about every other movie of his. Like, I really enjoyed Interstellar. That's my favorite. Yeah. I mean, mine too. Inception is, you know, a fun heist, and we all love a heist. And, you know, I think one of the things that is also good about this movie is, of course, like, Billy Murphy's great, as always. I thought there were, like, a ton of really great performances in it. Um, but it is it is kind of a dad movie with some weird touches. So, like I said, I was expecting to be bored and want to fall asleep, um, especially because I had not gotten much sleep the night before. But instead, I was just anxious about the nuclear apocalypse and uh, curious about history. Because I also, like, was not aware of his ties to communism. So that's always that's always a plus for me when I learn that about a historical figure. I'm like, oh, really? You supported communism. Well, you supported some ideas of communism. You went and hung out with communists all the time. I don't know that the movie needed to weigh so much of its narrative around the McCarthy era, like witch hunts, though, because yeah. like the thing that is a huge looming presence over the whole picture is like the what have I done aspect of the bomb going off. Yeah. And then there's a whole hour after that yeah. that's all about the like McCarthy, you know, holding them a task for his communist associations in his like earlier yeah. years. So I thought it was just about the irony that like he had this bomb and he made he was responsible basically for this team that made this bomb that killed hundred thousand people and yet he is getting on trial for a political belief he doesn't even subscribe to. Well, there's also some frustration in him maneuvering for power to like control yeah. the weapon, which is just like a futile effort. Like it's just not going to go anywhere. So like he he's trying to ignore a little bit of his responsibility by like working to stop it retroactively, which is kind of useless. Yeah. So I kind of get that. It's just, you know, not that interesting to me in comparison to the awesome power that was unleashed onto the world. And I don't mean awesome in a positive yes. way. It's just like literally. No. Awesome. Yeah. Like it fills me with awe. Yeah. Awful. Awesome. All of it. You're just in awe of this power. And even all of them were, even though they were nerds who were just happy to see their ideas work. But I do get the sense that like Nolan is actually interested in that power struggle between him and the potential congressman in a way that I just, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> like, it yeah. just kind of felt like dead air to me. Uh, but I'm sure people yeah. who eagerly await every Oliver Stone political thriller were, like, on the edge of their seats for that. Yeah, which it, it makes me think, oh, maybe I should watch more Oliver Stone political thrillers. But I think maybe that's just the part of me that, like, listens to, like, too many historical podcasts about, like, radical historical figures. Well, Barbenheimer weekend. I, I did go to the theater a lot that weekend and uh, post that ritual. I went to see a movie at the only theater in town that was playing Oppenheimer in 70mm, which was Britannia Uptown, and I believe is still the case, the original Britannia venue. But I went at 10 a.m. on Sunday to go see an Orson Welles movie I'd never seen before in their classic movie slot that's every Sunday and Wednesday. I saw Touch of Evil from 1958. Oh, nice. Yeah. Which is a late period noir for like a studio noir, and it's also like an interesting middle period for Orson Welles where like he had not been completely abandoned by Hollywood yet, but he was like on the verge of it mm -hmm. because basically after citizen Kane, every single movie he made, he had to fight for 
his version of the edit with the studio and he lost. So like every single movie after Citizen Kane is like a jumbled mess where you have to kind of like peer around the issues to like see the vision that he was trying to get across. Touch of Evil has a couple things going for it that most of those troubled projects don't. First of all, because it's noir, like, you know the tropes and beats of, like, a crime picture from that era. So, like, there's still a, a structure and a rhythm to it that's easy to follow along, even if there's a lot of editing room bickering that kind of confused what's on screen. Um, also, Orson Welles issued this, like, 50-page memo after he saw the, the butchered studio edit of, like, what he would do to fix it. And then sometime in the 90s, they re-edited the picture based on his notes. Uh, after Citizen Kane had gotten more clout uh, as, like, one of the great films ever made, which I think is legitimate. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's an entertaining picture all, all the way through. Uh, so, you know, they thought it was, like, worthwhile to, like, try to reconstruct what he wanted to do with Touch of Evil. Um, I will say up front, this movie has a very huge glaring problem in that uh, Charlton Heston is cast as a Mexican detective. Yeah. town. Not great, but... uh. If I may say so, it is a respectful version yeah. of Brownface of that era in that... It is a lot better than it could be, for sure. He's not doing an accent, thankfully. And also, the entire movie is about the racism of the American cops on the other side of the border. So, basically, there's this bomb that's smuggled across the Mexican-American border at this, like, Tijuana-style, like, pleasure town uh, that goes off on the American side. And Charlton Heston goes to investigate why there was dynamite in this, like, politician's daughter's trunk, I believe. And um, Orson Welles is the American, like, lieutenant who's on, on the case and becomes very apparent that he just, like, plants evidence on any Mexican nearby to, like, make it look tidy and make it look like he has a 100% success rate. And this Orson Welles performance is so fucking gross. <laughs> uh, this is years before he got, you know, big and jowly. But he had prosthetic jowls added to his face. Mm -hmm. And he shoots himself in these extreme low-angle close-ups where you can see every bead of sweat just dripping down his chins and, like, soaking into his shirt as he just, like, says the most racist, vile things possible while the more respectful lieutenant, played by Charlton Heston, is frustrated and trying to take him down um, in the meantime. And to get back at him... They send gangsters to torment Charlton Heston's new wife, uh, played by Janet Leigh, uh, who had not yet learned that um, she should not hang out in motels with Norman Bates types, because uh, this movie came a couple years earlier. And uh, while in their like newlywed hotel, waiting for her detective husband to come home instead of chasing around this racist American cop, these gangsters sort of take over the motel and torment her from the outside and eventually break into her room and uh, threatened to shoot her up with needle drugs and dump her body somewhere. Jesus. It's a very vile picture. It left me with a horrible feeling. <laughs> but yeah. it's also so good. It is really good as well. Yeah. I, yeah. Is that... Okay, I always get Touch of Evil and Third Man confused. Is that the one with the crazy, uh, like, single-shot beginning like yes opening. that is a touch of yes. evil oh my god it's like a yes. four minute unbroken crane it's shot incredible that starts it's on like street level wild. and you see the bomb in someone's hand so it's like that hitchcock thing where yeah. they show the audience the bomb before the other characters know about it um so we follow the bomb in hand into trunk and then there's two couples one is in a car and the other one's walking 
and we follow them both across the border um, at two different speeds in one unbroken crane shot that lifts you know, high above the ground and a ground level like mid-conversation in this very fluid, technically like stunning sequence. It's just yeah, like, so well it's, choreographed. It's so good. Yeah. And at the end of that shot, then the bomb goes off off screen. So I don't know. It, it just really builds to like a beautiful crescendo. And then, yeah, the like actual crime picture part of it is very upsetting and exploitative in a way that I don't think most studio pictures were like a lot of the gnarlier noir pictures were made on poverty row um, outside of like the major studio Hollywood system. So it's kind of weird to see like, you know, the studios were getting closer to the psycho era where you could go like full exploitation and like really push buttons and get away with stuff. Um, this is like almost around that time. And I, I think it gets nasty in the right way. Um, and it also has a uh, very distinct, like all cops are bastards, especially American cops. Yes. Politic to it. Yeah. And then, you know, I watched that at 10 a.m. And when I was leaving the theater, there was a line down the block uh, in front of the Britannia to get into Oppenheimer. Like you could hear yeah. in the lobby people getting impatient for this like old ass movie to get out of the way so they could watch their new Nolan film. Uh, which was just, like I, it kind of warmed my heart i was like okay I, i'm glad that um people are paying actual money to see a movie that's going to keep this theater open so they can play repertory screenings because it's one of the only ones in town that does it on a regular basis yeah uh, i also went out today right before we recorded and saw the new a24 horror film talk to me oh how was it it was really fucked up and upsetting it, it honestly left the same pit in my stomach feeling as touch of evil but I guess that's kind of what you want out of a good horror film. Like, it actually rattled me. Okay. I think it plays with two modern horror trends that are usually separate. So, like, on one hand, you have the, like, grief metaphor horror of stuff like Hereditary and Babadook and Midsummer, And then on the other hand, the stuff I'm more interested in, which is, like, the social media horror. Yeah. <laughs> So the premise of this movie, and it really does have a really good distinct mythology to it, is that these kids, these high schoolers, uh, come into possession of this ceramic hand. Uh, the legend has it it has an embalmed um, psychic medium's actual hand on the inside of the ceramic interior, but we never see that. Uh, but it, it's okay, sold. a hand in the shape as if it's like reaching out to shake your hand on like a business deal. And uh, they place this prop on the table at these like high school house parties. And you sit in front of the hand and you hold it and you say, talk to me. And a dead person's spirit appears in front of you. And then you say, I let you in to the spirit and they inhabit your body for a short period of time. And what's terrifying about it is the social media aspect. And I think y'all might like this more than some of the gimmick here horrors I love, like Unfriended and Host and stuff like that, where it's very much like rooted in a social media program. I think this is a tiktok horror film in that it's a movie about dares and like you know real life memes so like yeah. instead of a tiktok dance or uh you know a tiktok challenge where you eat a tide pod or put an entire spoonful of um oh, cinnamon no. in your mouth or whatever you know drink a gallon of milk in an hour uh instead you shake this ceramic hand and say these like magic words in this like ritual while all your friends are filming you so it's a peer pressure horror movie in a way we're like while all this fucked up demonic possession stuff is happening and your body is doing things you have no control over, all of your peers are around you in a circle filming your every move with the flash on. And so if you do something really embarrassing, you have no control over that footage when you get out. 
Now that is the immediate teen concern is like being mortified in front of all your friends. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and uh, they're playing with much bigger forces than they are aware of immediately. You know, like it, it gets it gets out of hand once the power they're playing with escapes the like safety of the little ritual. And maybe it goes in a more um, predictable demonic possession way after that. But like the violence of it is fucking brutal and upsetting and like made me squirm and cover my eyes. In a way that I'm usually pretty desensitized to. Yeah, I was going to say, usually, yeah. I just like the idea of a cursed object, so, yeah. you know, that's why I'm in. I'm like, yes. Having worked at a thrift store for many years, I'm like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta see it. I love them cursed objects. It's a great prop, and it's a great little mythology they set up very quickly. We don't have to think too much. There's no, like oh, we have to do research online to see where this hand came from. Like, that doesn't matter. Like, it, it's just, like, very immediate. Yeah, which is realistic for, yeah. for this sort of trend, you know? And the thing that really chilled me was the social media aspect. Like, the way that they were filming each other and rooting for each other to, like, do more for the lols and for the gram uh, was very upsetting in, like, a, you know, a way that really sticks with me. So, yeah, I would recommend it, um, especially after... Bodies, bodies, bodies last year. I felt like it had a very similar like peer pressure ritual to it. Um, this one's a lot more serious and a lot less finger waggy. It's not really dunking on Gen Z, but it is maybe pointing out the ways that they're glued to your phone socialization is ugly and upsetting in its own way. And I think it, I think it will prove to be one of the buzzier horror movies of the year. So I, I think seeing it with a crowd is worthwhile as well. Probably because we're all also glued to our phones at home. time of chaos and unrest. A writer in room 2046, haunted by a number from his past. 2046. A number never far away from his mind. A year in the not-too-distant future. So for this week's uh, movie, I had everyone watch the Wakong Wai movie 2046 from the year 2004. Um, this movie is kind of a loose collection of stories following an author in 1966 Hong Kong. Um, well, 66 and beyond um throughout these years he's working on a science fiction story called 2046 in which there is a place people go to called 2046 where nothing ever changes so people go to this place to revisit old memories but nobody knows if that's true or not because nobody's come back from there and so his story is about a japanese man on the train on his way back from 2046 and it's about his journey back and nobody knows how long that journey would take because nobody's ever done it and even by the end of the movie that man is not back so in between this story is a story of his romances and unrequited loves and his science fiction book like those scenes are interjected to like show how his life has translated to fiction within this book and 
it kind of goes back and forth between being a sci-fi and just following this man's life. Um, I kind of had a hard time with this one, actually. I know I'm the one that made us watch it, but it's a first-time watch for all of us. Um, part of my hard time is that I found this guy kind of terrible. And, so you know, sort of self-pitying male author figure that is so stereotyped. But even still, like, there's this sense of, like, longing and melancholy that, you know, I know Wong Kar Wai for. And the cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. And, you know, all of the art, of course, is incredible. And loosely, it is a sequel to In the Mood for Love, which I liked a whole lot more and kind of think might be one of the best movies ever in that it is also gorgeous but also it's it's more focused on one specific failed romance so i don't i don't know where uh y'all landed on this one but one of the the main quotes that stood out to me that kind of just seems like an idea that wong kar wai comes back to is you know that at some point the main character of the movie says love is all a matter of timing it does no good meeting the right person too soon or too late which Personally, I don't agree with now in my life, but maybe as a younger, more unsettled person figuring out my way through the world, I did. And I feel like it is exactly the sort of belief that this character would feel. But I also feel like throughout his filmography that I've seen, like Chongqing Express and In the Mood for Love, like this is an idea he keeps coming back to, is this longing and this loneliness and just... The timing not working out for love. Okay, how seriously are you supposed to take that, though? Because I don't think... Yeah, that's... I yeah. think the movie knows that he's a fuckboy idiot. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That is the other thing, is I'm pretty sure the movie knows he's terrible. If you keep having failed relationships with all these different women, you can't make it work. What's the common denominator there? It's it's you. Mm-hmm. And then he even gets the second chance with one of his, his first ones. Yeah, the, the crush that he has next door to the lady in room 2046 like he could have made that work and he bungles it so hard Wait, there's no one? way to take it the second lady not the not lulu yeah so lulu is the first lady who lives in 2046 the one who so um lowered her daily rate from 200 dollars to 10 dollars as yeah. like a formality yeah, yeah. Uh, gotcha. okay still charged him for his time but uh it was like kind of just like a formality but yeah he could have made that relationship work and he bungled it so hard and the fact that he keeps running so into her and both of their lives keep getting worse, I think is like mm-hmm. a critique of the way his like sappy fuckboy energy is like not yes. healthy for any romantic relationship. And I think he's already broken before the movie even starts because of what we've seen that character go through in a previous time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now for me, I did not know this was a sequel until like maybe in the last 15 minutes when there's like a flash of Maggie Chung. Yeah. I was like, Oh, this isn't like a spiritual sequel. Like this is the same guy. Yeah. I did not know that Tony Lung was playing the same character. And it was like an M night Shyamalan level twist for me. (laughs) I was just like, Oh shit. It's a secret sequel. Yeah. It is a very secret sequel. And I also, I I apologize. I did not realize that this was one of those secret Christmas movie movies. Yeah. It's also a Christmas film. And also in the mood for love itself was a sequel ish to a previous movie from the nineties as well. And the Lulu character, the like nightclub singer that he runs into early in this was from that excursion, which um, I have never seen. And 
I think the interesting thing about those movies and watching Wong Kar Wai talk about the making of this one, he says, like, this isn't a sequel, it's an echo. And I think you can watch any one of them by themselves without having to know that this character's story continues on. Yeah. It's just like uh, kind of like in that Elmodovar way where like one small character or event in one film will have its whole other feature film dedicated to it later. And like knowing the other movie definitely brings more texture and depth to it. But I don't think it's necessary for you to enjoy the individual works for what they are. It's just funny because like this one is so built out of scraps and built out of these like small momentary relationships that like the stuff that happens before the movie is key to the text in a way, but it's to the point where like one of the women he briefly falls in love with is this gambler who also may be a cheater <laughs> at poker tables and like yeah. tests his luck and like um, helps him build himself back up after he like really fucks up from his own gambling addiction. And I assumed that that character was from an earlier film as well. And she's entirely unique to this one. So like, it really doesn't matter that there are other movies connected to it. I think it works fine on its own. Okay. I assume that Boomer has not seen in the mood for love. That just doesn't seem like something you would have sought out on purpose. No, I, um, I had a hard time with this one. I'll admit it because I felt like I did not know what was going on. Like a lot of the time. Like I was like, I don't understand what's happening now. Uh, in a way where I was like, oh, this is a mood piece, you know, oh, it's a, you know, it's all about the beauty of the set and the cinematography and the like, you know, the lingering over uh, wine and song, you know, and then that to, to learn from y'all that, no, this movie does have a narrative that makes sense if you actually can pay attention to it is a little bit of a surprise. Uh, I guess I'm the only person who absolutely loved this. <laughs> I mean... I enjoyed it. I'm sorry. I sounded like lukewarm on it. Like I did enjoy it because like I said, I love a good mood piece. Um, I just had a hard time with the main character, even though I do know like on an instinctual level, like that the movie did not necessarily take him seriously. But at the same time, like having seen these themes and like other movies of his about like lonely, messed up people and longing, like it's just like an idea he keeps coming back to. One of the fun anecdotes from the behind the scenes featurette was like Tony Lung had a hard time playing this character again in this register. So like <laughs> in the mood for love has all of that intense yearning and you're supposed mm -hmm. to take like yeah. this sort of unconsummated relationship very seriously. Yes. And like you're supposed to feel bad for the guy, even though he's like kind of a sad sack. Yeah. And in this one, I don't think you're supposed to feel bad for him in the same way. It's like, the great understander of women has logged on and like tells us what the interior lives of all these women are. And he's like off the mark in every single instance. Yes. And his way of distinguishing those two roles, even though it's the same character is he's like, I have to have a mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, you don't have to have a mustache. And Tony Lung was like, no, I have to have a mustache. I mean, the mustache really fits <laughs> this character. Let's be real. He is yeah, the gives him this like, guy that would have a mustache. This little debonair fuckboy mustache. It's great. Yeah, it is great. I, you know, I'll, I'll reiterate. I, I didn't say I didn't like this one, you know, as so much as I was like, I didn't follow it well enough to understand, I guess, you know, certain parts of it. And then whenever I learned that it was a sequel, I just gave myself permission to be like, okay. Yeah. I couldn't possibly <laughs> have understood this, and that's but fine. As a mood piece, you enjoyed it. As a mood piece, I definitely enjoyed it. Yeah. Tony Leung is giving 
so much smolder in this. Oh, yeah. I don't know if maybe I was just reading him differently than everyone else, which might be the no, case. No, I mean, but... he definitely has a charm that he turns on, even if he is, like, a terrible human. Like, you can see both sides of him as an audience. Well, it's not hard to see why uh, a new woman is willing to sleep with him every night. Exactly, yeah. But the way he overindulges in that makes him to be kind of a creep. Yeah. And, like, the I way see. he overindulges in that and then blames it on, like, his past hurts. Yeah. You know. Can you be an incel and still have sex every day? <laughs> yeah, that is kind of the question that's answered here. I was asking that question and also, um, do androids dream fuckboy creeps? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking uh, Major Blade Runner energy for all of the, like, futuristic scenes. Because even, like, in a weird future, he still, like, wants to have sex with the robots that don't want to have sex with him. Yeah, he's, he is still drawn specifically to someone that cannot love him. Yeah. I understood yeah. that. <laughs> well, okay, I don't think that, well, I can actually say for sure that, you know, seeing in the mood for love before this, I don't think fully you don't need it, really. tells you the picture and, like, makes it all click into place. Like, it is a very yeah. loose, scrappy movie. And if you watch, like, the promotional materials for it, there's a ton of stuff that never even made it into the final picture. Because he kind of just, like, did this, like, scrapbook of ideas and sort of, like, ruminations on this one character's, like, internal loneliness. And he calls it, like, a summary of all of his movies. So it's it's kind of like all of his ideas yeah. in this, like, weird patchwork. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely caught on to that, for sure. It's messy no matter how much homework you do ahead of time, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I am picking up that, you know an understanding of the previous films is not necessary to an understanding of this one based on like what I'm, you know, hearing from y'all uh, in this, but I did, it did just like knowing that this was like, Oh, I have permission to like be open that I don't understand what's what happening. I think here. maybe previous knowledge of the characters might not be necessary, but I do think it might help to see like other movies of his okay. a little bit. It's almost like he gave himself the freedom to not have to have a solid narrative. Exactly. And still do the same ideas. Yes. Yeah. Which, I mean, I'm always for that. I like, actually prefer yeah. I this over say, in the mood for love a little bit. This seems, I, I was watching it and I was like, I feel like Brandon's going to love this because this is very one of those like loose, like dreamlikes, like this is a movie doing something that only a movie can do sort of movie, you know? Well, it has all of the highlights of in the mood for love, which mm -hmm. are the intense yearning and like unfulfilled love and it, uh, also the impeccable fashion just oh, like gosh every skin tight dress worn in this oh, is gorgeous so good from the like paper mache barbarella dresses in the future to the current ones which are very similar to maggie chung's wardrobe in that movie which might be the best anyone's ever looked on screen yes it's true uh, I would also say the choppy frame rate and like digital typeface of the early 2000s that's in that movie carries over here in a way that makes more sense because yeah. it's also got that futuristic video game backgrounds for the train scenes in the future. So, you know, it, it's kind of more bits with the sci-fi theme of this and just doesn't feel as out of place as it does in the earlier one. But all that's just to say that it, like this just hits closer to my home turf, like the sci-fi narrative sort of intruding on the modern times or, you know, the period piece drama at the center of this. Yeah, that sort of lyrical back and forth gets very messy and hard to understand, but, you know, makes sense emotionally. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it really just, like, 
was like if someone tried to re-edit in the mood for love in a way that would like grab my attention specifically like this is it yeah it's like the brandon edit the lede cut yeah yes. <laughs> release Bring, it release the lede cut of every movie ever oh god the world would be a worse place uh, <laughs> would it would it yeah in some ways for sure not every not every movie is ready for that level of, of filth you know, this movie does have its own Snyder Cut style controversy, though. Oh, I did. Really? Okay, so like there has been, I think in the last three years, these restorations of Wong Kar Wai's stuff that he's overseeing himself. Mm-hmm. So, like that's why this is on Criterion Channel and such like a crisp copy right now. And like, I believe In the Mood for Love, Chunking Express, and maybe one or two others all got this like new Biffy re-release on Blu-ray. And people are pissed about it because... <laughs> In that George Lucas style where like George Lucas went back and added a bunch of CGI to the old Star Wars films and you can't get the original cuts anymore. Uh, Wong Kar Wai has insisted on recolor grading every frame of these movies. So they have more of a strange yellow and green tint in that like sort of Matrix style uh, that sort of added retroactively to mm. the frame. Does not bother me, but it I does bother say, a lot of people. I was going to say, it does not bother me either. And I think you know, all of the frames and framing and like, I may not have appreciated or had a hard time generally following the main character, but it is a work of art for sure. Um, yeah. And every frame is just like, I want to fall into it, you know, like it had a heightened uh, Jean-Paul Genet kind of look to it, you know, yeah, it sc- exactly. Scrappy Amelie narrative structure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Especially it's that color green. That yeah. color green is all over. I'm sorry. Are we so? Which is the version that we watched on Criterion? Is it the we new saw the version? newer, yeah. newer edited? Yeah. Okay. See, yeah. it did seem very. I I actually thought about the Matrix while watching it. Like it did have a very Matrixy greenness to it that seemed strange to me. Apparently, that's a lot more intense than it used to be on the original prints of the film. But you know, having not seen the original print or like had it forever on rewatch or whatever, like it didn't affect my viewing of it whatsoever, but I could see like, if you're used to the film looking a certain way and the director goes ahead and changes it so that like all the new physical copies of it do not have the original color grading, how that would like short circuit your movie nerd brain. Yeah, I, I, I can see that. And I can see like, I don't know if I've ever seen the original cut of either Chung King Express or in the mood of love in the mood for love, but like, you know, I, I can see because his movies are so visual and there is such like a very exact and purposeful use of color, like being upset about it. But I think in this one, you know, especially since it is such a lyrical kind of frame story and you get this idea of the sci-fi-ness, like Matrix vibes are okay. I'm okay with that. It kind of fits the oversaturated um, yeah. video game graphics in the future scenes as well like yeah it's all of a piece yeah um sorry you couldn't follow it boomer it is a difficult one for sure yeah and i i definitely thought felt like it was my fault i i'll I'll definitely go immediately say right now i never felt like it was the movie's fault that i didn't understand what was happening um i was just like i don't understand it and I don't know. Maybe I'm. I, I don't feel like it's because I'm a philistine. I think that maybe just like this viewing, I did not. It broke my brain. You know. Yeah, I think it is kind of a brain breaker of a movie, and 
I like that aspect of it. Like, really, I liked everything except, you know, I, I have a hard time these days uh, watching two hours of, you know, a sad sack of a dude, even if the movie is critical about him. That, that I think, is the problem. Like, everything else I loved. All I really need is the movie to acknowledge that we are on the same page about the guy or like yeah. there's something being critiqued, you know? I honestly thought you were about to say as long as the movie acknowledged that we live in a society. <laughs> I, I was like, what is about to happen? I'm about to like double down on my uh, positive review of the Joker right yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I just want like the movie to be aware that it's unhealthy behavior. Yeah. He's got an, uh, an unhealthy view of women that's making his life actively worse because he keeps repeating the same pattern. And I think it's a worthwhile subject. I mean, there's definitely still men, especially young men around that like never get past this emotional development phase that he seems eternally stuck in. I think it's kind of fun to see him stuck in this hotel room and unable to move on from the past. Yeah. Tormented by his own arrested development. Like, the longer he rots in it and the more it's his fault. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like an amusing movie, but like, I was just like, fuck, why are you fucking up so bad over and over and over again? Like I, I was, I was actually strung along by his mistakes uh, yeah. because they were consistent. I, th- I think it is interesting um, being strung along by his mistakes. Just like the way that all of the women are strung along. You're like, maybe this time it'll be different. Right. You kind of want to slap him again. Like, he only gets slapped once in this movie, and that's the biggest surprise for me. He wanted to get slapped again, too. He liked it. Oh, yeah, he liked it. I think that's maybe why it was a good thing he didn't, but I still wanted to do it again. Just for good measure. I guess I should say I also liked it a lot because it's very pervy. There's a lot of, like, pervy voyeurism of um, people not only peering through, like, doorways and, like, keyholes, but, like, literally through the walls of the hotel, which are like barely stapled shut. Yes. Yeah. Like they're watching each other have sex. Um, just one room over, um, while this like over the top fifties melodrama music blares in the soundtrack uh, yeah. and everyone's wearing beautiful clothes. Like it's a very like fetishistic movie in a way. Yeah. It, it does check a lot of Brandon boxes. Um, and I don't <laughs> regret watching it at all. And I, I enjoyed it. Like I said, I just have a hard time these days with, uh, two hours of sad sack man. Which, you know, I wish I could have got, gotten over. Because there was a point in which even after I knew he was a terrible person, I was still hooked on his plight and still like, man, this is still making me feel things, even though I know it's his own fault. Because, you know, we've all screwed up again and again on some things, and it's been our own fault. You know, all sci-fi is supposed to ask, like, a what-if question. And this one asks, what if there was a guy who sucks? <laughs> <laughs> I think I already live in I already live in that world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did we say that he gives such good smolder though? He does. Oh, I, I mean he's so that? sexy. He gives yeah. a lot of good smolder, even with the mustache. There's so many like visuals in this movie where it's just like him looking like the point of view up and down, and it's like, whoa. Yeah. All right. <laughs> but unfortunately, I will say years from now, that's all I'm gonna retain. I don't think that's unfair to this movie either, because like Randall said, it is not. It is a it is a pervy movie. You do kind of like watching people watching. You do feel like a voyeur, even as other people are. So like, you know, I think remembering for the smolders is totally a good recollection. 
I guess I want to ask Boomer, like, you know, this is kind of like a Wong Kar Wai crossroads where like all these different ideas meet at one point um, to the point where he's like, even that room number 2046 being like turned into a futuristic world when it's really just a reference to the hotel room from the previous movie feels like, you know, deep lore for the Wong heads in the crowd. And I guess I want to ask, like, even though the movie didn't really give you a buoy to feel like you were above water with this stuff, like, did it at least intrigue you stylistically to want to see more from him? Absolutely. Okay. To the point where I was like, oh, I I was like, oh, should I go back and watch the movies this is a sequel to? (laughs) Will it make more sense? And from what I'm understanding, not really, but I'm still intrigued. Yeah, uh, all that will make sense is, like, the style carries over here, but I think it's, like pushed to a new weird area yeah it just goes like one step further in a way that i think heightens everything he's done before yeah which i guess is what you want out of an auteur oh i mean you want them to go all the way all the way to max i guess it's kind of like if asteroid city was your first wes anderson movie (laughs) right okay yeah it's like so many scraps of ideas that he's done before sort of rearranged in a new weird way that gets very messy but still has like the heart at the center of it okay yeah Although I guess for Wes Anderson, like the best time to watch your first Wes Anderson movie is as a teenager. I don't know when the best time to watch your first Wong Kar Wai movie is. When you're depressed in your early 20s. Yes. Preferably when you're still smoking cigarettes. Never yeah. kicked the habit yet. Yeah. yeah. I never went through the cigarettes, but yeah. There's a lot of smoking in his movies. So much smoke. It looks cool. It goes with the cocktail gowns. I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. I mean, everybody in the 60s smoked all the time everywhere. That's just the facts. Well, next episode, we are going to watch another Hong Kong topic. We're going to discuss early Jackie Chan films. Uh, nice. The movie's like right before he broke out in America. I think it's like the range we're going in. Not like his early stunt work before he was the main star, but like the movie's like made him famous mm-hmm. enough for Hollywood to take notice. And we're starting with Drunken Master. It's a good one. And uh, much like 2046... A lot of them are on Criterion Channel right now, including the Police Story trilogy, which I found delightful. Kind of like when we watched Yes, Madam, it was just like nice to have like some martial arts and stuff mixed in with the more like somber one car Y art pieces. Yeah. I'm a money lender. I have fortunes upon fortunes. Take my hand for ten. I am tortured, ever tortured And if you don't love me, let me go And if you don't love me, let me go Oh